Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome back. For those of you that listened to part one of this podcast, you'll know that you're about to listen to the second part of our podcast discussing the role of imagery in support of open source intelligence with Sean Corbett and our excellent guest, Robert Cardillo. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I have to, I have to say, as you talked about um, that assurance and the reliability of things being delivered, I, it brought to mind times in my past when as an airman, I was being called by the supported land commander saying, where are my damn aircraft? <laughs> you were told to get some aircraft to my, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So that does come back to mind, but let's not go down that channel. Let's come then, let's, let's pivot slightly from the, we've talked about why there must be limits. There has to be some sort of boundary between the commercial and the non-commercial sector. Okay, we get that. Let's let's turn that around now. So now you're talking to an audience of practitioners in the classified environment, in the geospatial classified environment, and you're seeing that they should or could be engaging more than they are with open source that's available to them. How do you begin to help them understand a what's available and b why they should get in, involved with the open source environment, Robert? Because I think we've said in this conversation that in some areas there's, there's no place for it. It can't be there. It's not going to be reliable, et cetera. In other places, we've said it absolutely is. And we've also, I think, indicated that there is probably still scope for more open source in the classified environment. So how do you convince them of that? And if you are going to convince them, what are you trying to convince them? And let's, let's focus it again on the geospatial. Yeah. Sean and I both, again, grew up in in the operative term of our titles was interpretation, right? So so we're hiring you to interpret or exploit information out of an image, right? It's yeah. it's stuck there in the image. We want you to pull it out and put it piece of paper and a cable and a computer so that people can. So I, to me, this leads to my presentation to the new class of geospatial analysts. I need you to be comfortable and confident that the machine can answer three questions now very, very well. What, where, and when. Mm -hmm. it, 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 and by the way, the fact that the machine can do what, where, and when is not a diminishment of your job because hang on, I've got two tougher questions for you. We're saving <laughs> the hard ones for you. Yeah. All right. So find a way. You need to find a way. And again, being comfortable doesn't mean you're not challenging and you're not questioning and you're not testing all of those computer vision tools to make sure they are 90 whatever percent accurate and you do understand what false positives and false negatives mean on those returns but as you can reach that comfort then i need you to spend your 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 gray matter on why yeah. and what's next and those two questions now who knows with chat GPT and image GPT where we'll be in even three months or three years, right? Maybe they'll get there. But right now, it's very, very difficult for a machine to do why and what's next. Yeah. It, it, can it help you? Could it be an intern-like or an apprentice-like service? And, and that's the, that would be my other uh, change. I wish I had thought of this uh, when I was in charge because, unfortunately, I was – rather aggressive with my introduction and, and disruption and too many of the analysts heard it as us or them, right? Robert's 
picking the machine over me. He's going to replace my job. I'm a bank teller. He wants ATMs. You know, the whole thing is just going to be, you know, uh, I'm out of work. And, and I, it took me too long to, to get to what I just described. Again, this is the, I guess, the beauty and the curse of age. Uh, you think of these things uh, afterwards. But but I do think it's important to, 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 to have them, the, the current uh, workforce, uh, get quite comfortable with that machine provision. Because just as Sean described, one of the most interesting things on an image is what isn't there. What isn't there tells you a lot about intentions, right? You know, a bunch of armored vehicle without the POL trucks aren't as interesting, right? Uh, a, a, a brigade or a corps that doesn't have their medical unit close by is also a different entity, right? Now, again, I'm not saying that our friends at uh, OpenAI won't figure out how to do negative absent information contributing to some sort of AI. But right now, that's that's up here in our gray matter. So I would want to excite them. And, and, and I would finish with, by the way, why and what's next are so much more interesting. Right. 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 And by the way, much harder. Yeah. You, you should yeah. be uh, you should also is it, you should be excited and you should be anxious. Now, I'd want you to be positively anxious, like, oh, boy, this is going to, you know, let's lean into this. Not, oh, my goodness, how am I ever going to figure out why Putin has moved that much armor to that location? You know, what's he going to do? And let's face it, <laughs> that is at the heart of many of our challenges today to think, get it inside of, the, of one man's head. Um, but I do think it's so exciting that you've, you you that the fact that you can at least attempt to tackle that question to me is quite yeah. exciting. But the time the time we've taken in the past, Sean, to get to the point where we actually start, start doing the judgment piece, the actual analysis of the why and the what next, is actually has been the tyranny, hasn't it, of the lack of ability to collect and collate and process, which is, I guess, Robert, the point you're making in terms of the machine being able to do the collect, collate, and to some extent process to allow you to get onto the, the really important questions. Sean, I'm gonna ask you the same question. Um, given your background, what do we need to do? And you can't use the same, same answer, Robert, by the way. That's now taken off the sheet. <laughs> what is it we need to do to get the analysts to understand what could be done in the geospatial environment, what they could be dragging out of the commercial or the open source environment anyway uh, to help them? How do we do that? That's so unfair because Robert nailed it. But it, it is it is a continued uh, education. Now, I think in some ways, and I talk about generations a lot, the next generation or the one that's coming through now are probably better equipped to do so because they are inquisitive, but they have got much less attention span. So whereas Robert and I would have been really happy sort of identifying the medical unit and counting tanks all the rest of it, that's not going to do it for them at all. So getting them to that place where you know, that all that mandrolic stuff is done. Now you've got the fun bit of doing the so what, the what if, um, with whatever source that happens to be. How you do that is inculcating the right culture early on. And unfortunately, you've heard me talk about this before, and it was something I, I really struggled with quite heavily within DIA, is that people tend to promote in their likeness you know, and so if you toe the line and you, you do the policies correctly and you follow process exactly, you tend to do well. If you are that maverick that goes, no, 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 there's a far better way of doing this. And it, OK, it might be a little bit of risk, but look at the answer. Those people tend to be looked at fairly quizzically. They tend to be impatient and therefore move on 
but somehow you've got to recognize them reward them and, and fast track them on so they are the people that people then want to follow uh, and in a big institution government institution any government institution that is a really difficult thing to do and you've got to do it by every means you can whether it's you know bribery blackmail coercion um, coercion yeah flattery <laughs> you name it. i tried all of those and the most the one that worked more than any of the, any of the others was allowing people to use my car parking slot <laughs> okay car parking is always good um so i think what you've just said sean is the digital native the technology natives that we're seeing as the younger generations who have no attention span i think is what you said we need to get them to a place where they can actually move quickly to things that really are interesting which is what robert's talked about and i think we've said that the open source and commercial environment might be able to help them get there i think that's what we've said and technology certainly being a big big piece of that let me then move the three of us on to uh, the next part, maybe, maybe the last part of this conversation for now. We've seen over the last 40 years, Robert, you've, you've, just, you've described it very well for us earlier, the trends in capability and how that's driven the, the foundational flaw of what I start with in my, techno, my, uh, my analysis, rising all the time around us. Where does that stop? Or is it going to stop? What are the big trends right now that you're seeing coming through that really excite you in the geospatial environment and probably because some of that will be in the technical means that are classified let's stay out of that realm let's stay firmly in the commercial realm what are you seeing coming through that for you is an exciting part of what's going on in the geospatial world and how do we get it to the next level going into government um yes this will be fun um i so a couple of things one uh, I'm quite comfortable with what I believe is the reality of ubiquitous sensing. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that some in the audience will shudder and go, well, well I don't want to live in a world that's ubiquitously sensed. I have enough anxiety with, you know, government tracking, uh, monitoring. Facial recognition. Uh, and yeah, sure. And right. Yeah. Uh, we, we need more anonymity. And I'm not disagreeing with that, but. I well, I don't. I understand that that sense, right? That that negative anxiety that could be coming with it. Um, I guess my counsel would be, we, and that's a big we, because this is a social compact discussion about how you know how we're governed, uh, what what limits we set on the government. <laughs> the U.S. Congress is in the midst of a current debate about uh, the accesses of our Federal Bureau of Investigation with respect to said surveillance, right? Uh, and then there are strong views on both sides, right? The one, one side says it's a, it's a necessity to keep us safe, and the other side is strongly or more strongly believes it's a fundamental infringement on my individual liberty, right? And, 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 and that's, I th by the way, I think it's a beautiful tension within our our systems, right? That 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 the power of individual liberty and the necessity of collective security. Okay, figure that out, right? That's that's those the two things we both want. Uh, but you, what you just asked, Harry, is about you know wh where's that line going? Well, I do think there is coming, and and look, I know we're on a podcast, but I'm going to hold up my iPhone and say you know we've really already agreed. Mm -hmm to ubiquitous sensing um, by carrying these things with us. And, and we have decided individually to make a trade. I am going to trade the, the fact that a government or a human or a bad actor can now follow me 
uh, know where I'm at, where, where I'm not at, when I'm places, even what I'm doing and, and, and who I might be meeting with. But I'll trade that for the convenience that I get back. Right. So right. I, I've made a deal in this case with Apple. Other people have made deals with Google and Huawei or whomever, you know, fine. But but to you, but here's let me get back closer to your question, Harry. So so I, I think that's just going to continue. Um, uh, again, I, I, I work with a company that is scanning the Earth once a day, Planet Labs. The second uh, entity that will be able to do that is Chinese, uh, yep. Jilin. Uh, they have about half their orbit uh, up now um, in next year or two. They will have global access on a daily basis. And by the way, commercial, unclassified, you can go buy it you know, or mm -hmm. rent it or lease it uh, as, as you wish. Um, that's not going to stop. Um, um, I mean, you know, you, people know about the Starlink uh, and uh, and uh, Kuiper, uh, you know, the thousands of satellites. Uh, so anyway, that that's going to continue to happen where I am not sure. And this, I think, goes to what Sean was saying about, you know, kind of what era, what uh, generation you're from. I unfortunately think the government is still acquiring commercial in an additive way. Okay. Here's what mm -hmm. I have, right? I, I, I own this. I operate that. I'm going to go buy an increment of this and right. add it to the end of my equation. And that, as I've said earlier, I think that needs to be fundamentally flipped. Um, I also am well aware of how unusual and how difficult it fundamental flip. And the reason is, and it isn't just the biases that we've talked about, in, at least in the U.S. system, it's the tyranny. Does Robert want to say tyranny? He just did. The tyranny of our acquisition process, uh, yeah. uh, our programs of record. I am a huge fan of Robert McNamara and what he built in the 60s with our future year defense program. We call it a fight it. Well, we built that program because we were fighting a machine called the Soviet Union. So we built a bigger, better machine, and our machine won, right? We just out-Sovieted the Soviets. Uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll be okay with that quote, too. Um, but <laughs> let's face it. You know, we went through a, a non-peer threat, right? We're still going through, right, the non-state actor. But the pacing threat for all of us now is China. And yes, it's a big system, but it is not the Soviet system. And I worry that we've kept – the model that we developed to beat the Soviets, and we're trying to apply it against the Chinese, and I fear it will not work. And so, and by the way, I, what I just said intellectually, I'm sure my colleagues in government agree with it. The problem is, is there's so much momentum in that machine that I yeah. mentioned. Yeah. You know, and by the way, the machine is fueled by. Uh, companies, right? Some of whom I work for now, uh, by Congress, okay, by lobbyists, by the you know the natural momentum of the Pentagon's requirements process. So again, there's nothing wrong with anything I just said. No one out there is saying, oh, I wonder how we could you know figure out a way to lose to China. It's not what they're trying. To <laughs> it's just that sometimes we can have these conversations on podcasts like yours. But then bringing them back into the building is enormously difficult because there's so much counterweight to everything I just said. I apologize for bringing the, the kind of the, depressing the conversation there. But uh, but I but look, I, I don't think we can deal with it unless we we talk about it and tee it up in that way.
Well, I'm I'm going to have to ask then. So I, I don't disagree with what you've said. And for a period of my life, I, I choose to forget most of the time. I worked in capability development in Whitehall in London. So I know the sort of inertias and problems you're alluding to all too well. But in a few words, how do you shatter that? How do you break that cycle and get to a place where we are going to be able to keep pace, if not get ahead of the anticipated threats that we're seeing growing in front of us? How do we how do we reverse the trend you've outlined, Robert? I'm not optimistic. Um, a, a friend, Chris Bros, wrote a book about five years ago and called The Kill Chain. Um, I recommend it because it, it Chris covers well and he had tons of experience on the Hill about that inertia, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Us kind of doing the same thing over again, hoping something else comes out the other end, which is another <laughs> definition for insanity. But um, but here's where I think and this is why I have I'm not not optimistic. Um, as good as Chris wrote in that book in describing the challenge of requirements based processing and long term, you know, development and acquisitions schedules, um, he barely touched on our Congress and I don't want to lay all the blame there, but I'm going to lay, lay a good bit of it there. There's a challenge, at least in the U.S. system, that that yeah. And look, it's a balance, right? We 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 try to have three branches of government that can check one another, so that's not an accident. But unfortunately, the check that Congress has is on uh, money and timelines. And we, look, we the, the, we may not have a budget at all in FY24, which starts in about two and a half months, meaning Congress will push through what's called a continuing resolution. Just, oh, you can, you you know, you'll have the money you had last year, but no new starts, right? No new builds because we haven't authorized them. Right. Oh, China couldn't do a better job at holding us back. I mean, we, we, we and, and again, do I think Congress is up there trying to help China? Of course not. But because they want to hold on to their power, right? I have a check over the executive branch. I'm not giving that up because that's how our system works. So you can't do something new until I give you permission. That's why I'm not optimistic here. <laughs> I I don't think there's going to be any real change to that system, unfortunately, until we have a huge wake-up call. And I worry about it. And whether you call a, you know Pearl Harbor 9-11, I worry that we, we will survive the and I, yeah. we'll, we'll still exist, but could China make such a move so quickly that the, our lesson is just too late? Yeah, we've learned a lesson, but we can't implement it because we're not here to implement it. Sean, it's uh, your task now with that same question, looking at it from a non-US perspective, looking into other parts of our community. Let's talk, let's talk about NATO. You've worked in NATO. You've worked in the UK. Do you see the same sort of inertia? And if so, how do we turn that around outside the US? I mean, Robert's talked about Congress as being part of the problem. I'm sure there are other parts that he could talk about, but he's zeroed in on Congress for now. What about outside of the US? Is there the same sort of inertia? And if so, how do we break that problem? Um, the answer to that is is firmly yes. I mean, I'm even more gloomy than Robert is, actually, which is kind of I tend to be anyway. But, you know, the, the and, and it's and again, it's a point when well made that Everyone's aware of this and everybody thinks, yeah, we need to do something about it. But all that happens is new people come in, they try new processes, which is still incremental, which is still process driven, which is still authoritative. And, and again, I agree. And we've mentioned this on previous podcasts that, you know, I really hope it doesn't need a significant strategic shock to 
to, to get it to because it might be too late because each progressive strategic shock we have is worse and it might be exponent um, existential which i don't use that word very often but so how do we do something about it um by doing this sort of thing at a very very low level to try and you know i don't know who listens to this in the you know the movers and shakers within the mod for example if anybody and if you listen to you know the current head of strategic command uh as i have several times when he's been briefing you know he is very upfront say look we need to collaborate more with the industry we need to work better with industry which is only one small element of it but i think one of the reasons he's saying that is now it's the industry that are the innovators the people that are agile enough to move the the question on that though is are they going to get the investment they need to actually capitalize on that and keep on doing that so there is something there for the commercial sector um but that doesn't answer everything either um no. now you could we could get start going on the rabbit holes of okay do we need you know um dedicated procurement people because we've all been in a position of capability development where you know, I know you were you were much better than I was in there, but you know, you, you're an amateur trying to, you know, develop something that is incredibly complex, and that's just the process. Let alone what you're actually trying to deliver. So, do we need specialists who stay in there all the time? And you can say, well, yeah, we do have them, the civil servants, but you need people at the decision level to do that. Is that the? And I know I noticed actually from the the Air Power Conference that's just read out is that there's an initiative to try and get people to go from industry to to the military, military back to the industry, I think it's called the zigzag approach or something, to try and get that agility. Whether that will break the mold or not, I don't know. So, you know, it's an impossible question to answer. All right. Well, I do think you've touched on something there, there. And at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to paint you both into a corner, I think what we've said is commercial is moving at a pace that government isn't. We've said that governments need to move more quickly and we've just said that we probably need more more commercial in government but there are limits i think that's what we've said in terms of how the open source environment might help government there is a podcast waiting to have that conversation though but i'm going to start to draw stumps on this conversation for fear that uh, the listener is going to run out of coffee listening to it so let me let me do this uh, in a second robert i'm going to ask you to give me your your one takeaway from this conversation you'd want the listener to actually walk away from this conversation with in their heads so what's your one takeaway and we're focusing here as you know on geospatial and the open source environment sean i'll come to you to do the same and then given that i'm moderating this, I'll take the last chance. So Robert, where do you want to go in terms of your one takeaway for the audience? Uh, just despite the last 10 minutes, I would hope the audience could leave uplifted in, in this way. There's so much potential power in this in this sensing. And, and I'm not going to cast it in a military or even a national security. I, I just strongly believe that the more transparent our planet is, the better it is for open societies. And so even though we, we absolutely value individual liberty and personal privacy, and so we have to find ways to kind of condition that, you know, that access and whatnot, broadly speaking, the more transparent, the better. Putin does not want a transparent planet. All right. She does not want a transparent planet. That is not part of their social compact with their citizens. So for all of the challenges that we've described today, I would ask the audience to be broadly embracing of that transparency and 
and help us find the guardrails, right? That that are needed uh, in places. But don't don't wish it to go away. That's that's probably not a good yeah. course of action. Don't hope that, yeah. Don't hope that the science begins to regress. That's probably not going to happen. Um, yeah. So I guess I leave it with embrace it. Right. Uh, uh, interact with it. Um, there is always uh, my strong belief that that human component will always be uh, uh, exist uh, exactly what's needed. Um, and so, um, yeah, jump in uh, and make it better. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Sean. So as always, I will follow Robert Cardillo's lead and have a positive approach, which is unlike me, as you know. But <laughs> I think back to the the incredible increase in capabilities we've had full through the full spot spectrum, sorry, of open source intelligence. But of course, you know, with imagery being my first and, and lasting love, I'm going to focus on that because I think you you are seeing the the greatest. Uh, innovative developments. So it's positive. So that understanding, that ability to understand the world is so much greater. Now, there's no question about it, you know, despite the, the disinformation, misinformation, obfuscation as well. But I think the key is to, as much as we can, become comfortable with the risk that that entails, you know, all the risks that Robert was talking about in terms of everything from, you know, the security implications, the how assured is it really? We've got to become a comfort, a com more comfortable with that risk and and to, to, to maximise its impact. Yeah, and I think for me then, the one that I'm going to take away from this conversation is that I have been heard to say on this podcast many times, we need to get more engaged with open source and not just the commercial, but the open source environment. We just got to get better at it. I think what you've done for me today, Robert, is you've uh, underlined and reminded me, yes, of course, but there has to be limits. There has to be a space in which the national security of the the company, the organization, excuse me, that we're working for, the nation we're working for, we got there eventually, that national security has to be dependent on things that are totally assured and in their control. There has to be a limit. And I think that's a piece that uh, I'll take away from that, that the open source, of course, it's important, of course, but it can't be the thing that I necessarily use for my decision making. It has to be somewhat more bounded for that for my national security. So with that, then let me uh, stop and say, Robert, a huge thank you for your time. I know how busy you are. I can only imagine how busy you really are. Um, there aren't many people in the world that could sit here and have this conversation with us about the geospatial environment that you that know more about it than you do. You've been at the very beginnings of the recent generations and you're sure will be an influence for many years to come. So thank you so much for your time today. A great conversation. No, it's been it's been fun. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, at the risk of uh, of complicating future calendars, uh, if and when you all want to pick up the next chapter uh, or next couple of chapters uh, on this conversation yeah. or narrow it down on a certain area, please, please, I'd be happy to continue the conversation. Well, stand by for incoming on your calendar because I can guarantee that's going to happen. Robert, thank you. Sean, thank you as always for joining me and to the listener for taking the time to listen to his talk. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. <laughs>